when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to Down to History. I met a listener the other day. Uh, and she came up to me, said I was listening to all of your history hits on a journey driving across Europe. And um, and and the first thing that came to her mind as a source of praise, she said, they're short. So, uh, thank you. But she also did say, she also did say, it's annoying having to listen to the advert on the front. And you know what? I understand that. I understand. That's why I keep telling you. <laughs> in the advert to go and subscribe to History Hit TV because there are no adverts if you listen to it on our on our app. They're all there, advert free, all the all the back catalogue of podcasts, all the new ones. Historyhit.tv, go and listen to that. But the second point is I on the advert thing, it's important to say like the advert is currently what is paying for History Hit. Like that is how we're making all this work. That's how I'm able to uh you know, go to Vinderlander and do that cool podcast with the Burleys this week. It's working. It's paying for the excellent Laura to find the best guests for this podcast. It's paying for the brilliant Ollie to come and film this extraordinary Dutch resistance heroine who escaped death at the hands of the Nazis in Ravensbrück. Me and Ollie were filming her with actual cameras yesterday. That was paid for by the adverts that are annoying. It's paying for a load of geophysical surveys of an exciting British battlefield that we may be able to reveal the location of in the next few months. So thank you for listening to those adverts. I hope you continue listening into the autumn, into the fall, because we've got lots of exciting stuff coming up. Um, this one is also exciting. This is Professor Susanna Lipscomb. She's been on this podcast so many times, she might as well be hosting it. Professor Susanna Lipscomb is one of my oldest friends in history. She's incredibly talented. She's a Tudor historian. Uh, she's also a TV presenter, broadcaster in her own right. Uh, she received the ultimate accolade the other day from the one and only Hilary Mantel, author of the greatest trilogy of books in the English language. Uh, she wrote at the back of one of her books, anyone who's interested in the subject, go and read the wonderful Susanna Lipscomb. I mean, you can die happy when you get that written about you from such a genius. Uh, so this is an episode about one of her latest books. She's produced a history of magic. If you do want to go to History Hit uh, TV and become a subscriber, like Thousands of people at the moment. I mean, it's just wild over there. Uh, please go to historyhit.tv, uh, sign up using the code POD1, P-O-D-1, and you get to listen to all these podcasts without advertisements on the front. Also, you get all the back episodes, which are not available anywhere else in the world. So I'll see you over there. In the meantime, enjoy this episode with Professor Susanna Lipscomb.
Professor Susanna Lipscomb, welcome back on the podcast. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. Always lovely to see you. I mean, you've been on so many times, it must be getting very boring. But the reason you've been on this time is because you keep writing these goddamn books. This is extraordinary. Well, this, this, time, this time I've just written the forward. I haven't written the whole book. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. You're a powerhouse uh, and, you know, starting a family. I don't know how you do it, really. This is a kind of history of magic and superstition. If you hold the view that I do, that once we understand something, we call it science, but like magic doesn't really kind of exist. So why write a history of it? What's the point? Well, I suppose throughout the centuries that have passed, there's been so much that people didn't understand, right? There's been so much that's been inexplicable. And magic helps you tilt the balance in favour of trying to control what you can't control. I think, I think that's why people have wanted to harness the power of magic. Um, and, you know, whether that's trying to control... Um, you know, life after death or try, you know, trying to or whether it's about trying to protect your crops or trying to get pregnant when you can't get pregnant or to help your child get well when they're sick. I think a lot of it is about power, really. It's about power and trying to trying to uh, ensure that there's some recourse when there's so much that's beyond um, one's own agency. And so presumably what studying people's magical practices if that's the right word presumably that tells us a lot about the society that they're from yeah it tells us about their concerns and their preoccupations and it often tells us a lot about those who don't have access to mainstream power in that society as well although sometimes um magical practitioners were really at the heart of things but a bunch of the time also they were people who otherwise you know didn't have access to any public power and so were attempting to use magical practices in order to uh, to change that as well let's go back to the beginning because this book is such a fabulous comprehensive survey let's go back all the way uh, what about in the ancient world that ma- what's going on with the magic in the ancient world because I'm get- I'm on Twitter at the moment it's a hot day in the UK and everyone is talking about animal sacrifices and rain dances and stuff and it strikes me you know when you look at d- divination people looking at entrails of animals um, you know, the ancient authors are full of magic. Yeah, I should have looked up and see if there was any specific cures, to, you know, for, for dry spells. Um, but, yeah, no, if we go back, the earliest opportunity to, to find in history of practising magic appears to be like about 4,000 years before the Common Era. So ancient Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. Um, and there's evidence there from the palace library of an Assyrian king called Ashurbanipal, who had hundreds of clay cuneiform uh, tablets in that library, and they are inscribed with spells and incantations. So, you know, we, we have to go a pretty long way back to get to the beginnings of magical practice. And then, of course, we've got ancient Persia. Herodotus talks about the Magi in ancient Persia who are interpreting dreams and who are intoning over the flesh of sacrificial animals. Um, and accusations of sorcery in ancient Persia were pretty serious. Like you could, if you were accused of sorcery, um, the you could have molten metal poured over your tongue to determine guilt. I'm not quite sure how it determined guilt, but that's what they did. And then in ancient Greece, as, the, as far as I can tell, it's the first time we see the use of wands and also potions. Again, um, looking at the Odyssey, the Homer's Odyssey, we've got Odysseus taking a potion uh, made of uh, moly, which is a kind of magical herb, to stop Circe turning him into a pig. Um, and one of the key concepts in ancient Greek magic is um, about binding. So trying to bind 
sort of physical or intellectual attributes of your victim to your own will. So, you know, whether you've got clay or metal figures that are literally sort of bound and we found them or we found um, papyrus with incantations on that start, I bind or whatever. And a lot of that is imported into ancient Rome. One of my favourite things about ancient Rome is the use of amulets is quite popular there. And it was normal for Roman boys to wear the bulla, which is a, a, a phallus-shaped charm to protect against evil spirits. Um, but it, the book also covers, you know, sort of ancient Japan, for example. And that's an amazing example where you've got um, occult practitioners, omniaji, who are... Um, <laughs> mainstream practitioners and they, they they become court officials they there's even a divination bureau uh that appoints them and that exists get this up until 1868 when the emperor meiji disbands it so a divination bureau um and they they're doing things like exorcisms and you know rituals to determine whether x person can come into the court and that sort of thing um that's very cool when you were like working on this project were you struck by what joins us, what binds us together as humans, our common humanity? Yeah, I think so. It feels really amazing to look at all the examples of, you know, the, 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 there are the, the rituals and the spells and the incantations or whatever it is. The practices themselves may change, but they have, on the whole, sort of broadly similar concerns. And uh, it is incredible when you have a look at a survey like this to see similar beliefs popping up all over the place and and obviously it's sort of difficult because you don't want to focus on the the similarity to the extent of ignoring the particularity you know if you think of the um pit rivers museum <laughs> like that was criticized for, for years um in oxford because um it gathers together say like all of the fetishes that, or you know all of the shrunken heads or you know like from different places and makes a parallel between them but at the same time you know so for example um i got really fascinated in reading this book about practices relating to divination one of the things that we most can't control as humans is that we live in linear time and we can't see the future so we uh have been fascinated with trying to uh predict what it's going to be and people have used all manner of things so in ancient china they would cast yarrow stalks uh, clearomancy and i put this on twitter a few days ago and someone tells me you can go into a chinese uh, medical shop today and buy yarrow stalks you can still do this anyway um or again back to homer you know we've got divination there achilles um is said to consult is told to consult or he suggests sorry consulting um uh, an interpreter of dreams to try and figure out why the god Apollo is angry with the Greeks. Um, and in ancient Greek, they uh, were particularly concerned with observing the flight of birds to try and uh, divine the future. Or um, ancient Rome, they are interested in animal entrails, so the colour of livers, which is called haruspicy in the, you know, the Mexica, the Aztecs. They scatter maize kernels and patterns on the ground. Um, and some of these things have just got the most fantastic names, you know. Um, my favourite, I think, is from medieval Byzantium, and it's called um, Chromistomomancy, which is interpreting horses' nays. Although the, actually, the Byzantine uh, also have paleomancy, which is about interpreting uh, inadvertent bodily twitches. 
Well, that is interesting because, of course, now we're told that the great powers all have special bodily twitch experts who are re reading body language of other prime ministers and presidents, aren't we? So that has actually surely come back into fashion. So, uh, okay, what about, I'm, I'm, that's brilliant, love divination. There's a lot of alchemy in the book, isn't there? And al alchemy feels like a kind of um, gateway drug to science. Uh, but, um, and, but, but, but alchemy, especially in the, your period, you're so versed in the 16th century, um, you must see the alchemists, I mean, there was a sort of respectability about alchemists, wasn't there? Yeah, there certainly was. I mean, in the 16th century, it's mainstream. Um, and actually, one of the reasons we don't perhaps, perhaps we don't know as much about this as we could do is that one of the major sources used for the 16th century is um the state papers that were all gathered together and calendared i.e put in chronological order and typed up basically in the 19th century and these 19th century men choosing which state papers were important didn't think the ones about magic were that important so there's a whole there's a lot of stuff in the manuscripts that hasn't really made it into much of the normal discourse but yeah so Dr John Dee obviously famously an alchemist but also people like William Cecil and Sir Thomas Smith so Queen Elizabeth the first court was riddled with alchemists and she actually had alchemical laboratories at her court but it goes back much further that the word alchemy comes from alchemia which is Arabic, and it means transmutation. So it's about trying to change one substance into another. And uh, you're absolutely right about it being the sort of gateway to science because people like the 9th century Arab scholar Al-Razi were uh, basically early chemists. So they are people who are coming up with the idea of having laboratories and distillation. Um, and uh, and it's actually even practised in ancient China even before that as well. But the in the Renaissance, it, the focus becomes comes to trying to find the philosopher's stone so that the 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 thing that will help you uh, change base metals into gold and will help you cure illness and attain immortality and that's the focus and the other thing to connect this with science is that people go on believing this for quite a while so Isaac Newton you know one of the uh, founders of the scientific revolution was um, uh, an alchemist he undertook alchemical experiments he read alchemical texts heard of him yeah no i mean that's extra i find that i, th I think that's i think that relationship so far hi i'm matt lewis historian and host of a new chapter of the echoes of history podcast if you're an assassin's creed fan and like me want to be prepared for the launch of assassin's creed shadows later this year join us on echoes of history as we head to feudal japan to explore the real life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Um, what about, okay, so uh, another thing you cover, which I like, is similar to the Philosopher's Stone objects, uh, magical objects. I See, I'm in, in honor of this interview, I'm wearing my lucky charm. You see, this, my, my kids made me this little shell necklace. And I have this strange attachment to it. I'm not really an object kind of guy, but I have this strange attachment and it's uh, like a charm. And so um, I thought, I'd, like, this is my little bit of magic. Um, what kind of things have you, have you come across? Yeah, yeah. So amulets are the, a crucial thing. So warding off evil, really. So um, basically stones and objects can often be thought to be receptacles of magical power. So you, in ancient Greece, you've got... Um, Hamatite, which was thought to protect unborn babies, and jasper to cure stomach infections. Um, in ancient Greece, jade was thought to keep away evil spirits. Um, and in medieval Byzantium, sardonyx was thought to help protect against miscarriages. So quite often you would wear one of these because you could put it in a piece of wood or a piece of bone and then you could wear it just as you're wearing your shell. And um, and obviously the modern version of these are the kind of talismans of St. Christopher's, uh, you know, medallions or um, the, the, those cats with the raised paws you see um, in shops often or lucky mascots of sports. Um, but the other thing about, apart from that, and then also in the 16th century, it's quite often things like witches' bottles and shoes in chimneys and silver coins and stuff to protect against malevolent spirits. But this idea goes back, uh, you know, to ancient Egypt, scarab beetles or um, ancient Islam the Hamza, the, the Hand of Fatima. So it's been really common. Um, and I think one of the things is, that one of the parts of it is basically, the, the, I think at the heart of the idea about objects as intermediaries is, is that they, um, they, there's transference. So they will take the evil spirit as opposed to you. And in a similar way, it's been thought things like, um, you know, you could use objects or animals to heal yourself. If you had plague buboes, put a live chicken against those plague buboes and the, the, the illness will transfer to the bird. Um, or more uh, malignantly, poppets. So, you know, voodoo dolls, figures shaped to look like somebody and you, you do harm to that doll in order to do harm to um, the person. And this is, but this is going on. What's amazing is how many places have poppets like around the world, how common this is. Um, you know, you find it in Haiti, and um, but you also find it in 1612 in Lancashire, in the Pendle Witch Trials, <laughs> you know, clay figures um, being uh, pricked with a thorn or a, a pin to cause pain. Well, you once tweeted a 
uh, royal advice uh, manual, pamphlet, written about how to cure aching stomach and that was to lie with a beautiful maiden. Um, but that does kind of remind me of Herbal Dorm because this is magic is such a fascinating subject, isn't it? Because some of it, like Poppets, is just balls. And then others was obviously kind of on, was true because it was proto-science. So herbal healers and, and remedies, we now go, oh, look at that. You know, it turns out that that is a, like an antibiotic or an antiscorbutic or... So that's a whole part of magic that's been hived off and turned into science, hasn't it? So do you cover that as well, I presume? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I, in fact, so what to quote you back at yourself, I remember once you gave a talk about the value of history and you were talking about how we so often say that history is not useful because so much of it, when it works, it's become something else. Like So, it, it, you know, the historical experiments uh, with, you know, uh, alchemy becomes chemistry and then they're like that's our subject it's like well actually it's ours really but um so you know or whatever it is the successes of uh of things so yes absolutely the therapeutic qualities of plants um you know sage to heal fevers uh aloe vera to treat burns things that work but also um you know for example basil to calm your mind now i quite often put a few drops of basil oil in uh you know one of those diffusers in here when I'm trying to focus and I think that's fine I think that works basil was also thought though to create wealth and so far it hasn't managed to do that but you know um or patchouli which was thought to be an aphrodisiac um mistletoe was thought by the druids the celtic druids to bring fertility and then one of the sort of most difficult plants of all was mandrake which uh, was thought to be an aphrodisiac and thought to be a cure for sterility but it was also thought that it would scream as you pulled it out of the ground and that its scream would kill anyone who heard it. Um, so I, so I guess what, I don't know, you know, what's going on there? Is that just so you don't try? <laughs> so like, anyway, but, but the, the, the thinking behind that is sympathetic magic. So the idea is that, as you well know, that the, that the healer would find something in nature that looked like um, the ailment and then use that as a cure. So in, Medieval Europe cured jaundice, for example, they would try making a potion of mashed earthworms and old urine. The idea being that the yellow colour would act to cure the yellow tint of the jaundice. And mandrake is supposed to be shaped like a human body, so it's supposed to cure lots of things. Crikey. And we should talk about magicians and witches. Do you see a similar thing with that you do in religion with the priesthood, where some societies develop kind of a quite hierarchical structure and you've got witches and wizards that need training in a se almost separate caste, where the others are a little bit more Protestant about it and, and where every, everyone can kind of do magic. I mean, you must, you must see that in different cultures. Yeah, so, I mean, in Slavic culture, what's sort of modern Ukraine, they had the, uh, the witches and wizards, I suppose, or male witches as well, were called Volkovi, and that was both men and women. Um, and they would, you know, doing things like divination and protecting against bad spirits and healing, all the standard stuff. But they were also said to be able to shapeshift into becoming bears and wolves, and they were supposed to have dragon ancestors. But the most famous of those is a woman, a wild old woman called Baba Yaga, who still appears in Russian folktales, um, flying around in a mortar with a pestle. Um, but, yeah, in some places... So, I mean, when the, those Japanese, the Japanese divination bureau I talked about, that's all men, but in some places all women. So in the Norse magic uh, sorcerers, some of the most revered were female wand carriers who had long uh, blue coats which were lined with white 
cat's fur and black lamb's wool. And they also can shapeshift. So shapeshifting, it seems, is one of sort of the... If you're on the higher echelons of witchery or wizardry, you know, shapeshifting and, you know, making things invisible. Yeah. You've talked to me a lot about witchcraft and its persecution in a perhaps less humorous way in 7th century France. But I mean, what other kind of spells? I mean, a lot of the spells to do with medicine and, and and putting and is it putting the evil eye on people? Is it like sort of both for good luck and bad luck? And then and then the love. Let's come to the love because that's nice. That's nice magic, I think, isn't it? Yeah, love spells. Well, it depends. I mean, it, it depends what you do, I suppose. But um, yeah, there's all sorts of uh, things that can be done um, to try and cure sickness by um, tying, you know, herbs and salt into a a cow's tail that's fairly benign you know burying a dog not so benign but love right so there's a medieval jewish love spell which uh in which you fill an eggshell with your blood and the blood of your intended there's there's not much clue about how you get that but um once you've got that uh you write both your names in blood on the shell and then bury it and that apparently promises instant results well, you and I have talked a lot about sort of you're you're obviously a world expert in uh, the Tudors, and and your recent book is astonishing on on France uh, or French history as well. So please go back and listen to those podcasts. So we're not going to talk too much about that period, because I actually would love to go on to something that I've seen a little bit recently. I've had friends and close people to me that have lost loved ones, and they're quite fascinated by spiritualism, the idea that you can talk to people after death. And it's very difficult for me because I, I know a little bit about it. And I know that particularly it was particularly popular after the First World War with these vast numbers of brief families were frankly taken for a ride by various sort of spiritualists who said, you know, I can I can talk to your, you. You could been talked to your deceased son, you know, these young boys through me and stuff. So I'm quite it's very it's been tricky because that, that seems to linger in our society, this, this urge to speak through mediums. Um, is that something that's recent or is, is that, has that, have you, do you see that all the way back through history? In its modern form, the idea of having seances um, that you can communicate with dead, the dead through a medium um, in the West, that's been since about uh, the 1840s. There was a, a couple of sisters in New York called Maggie and Kate Fox who um, claimed they could commune with the dead. And then it got particularly popular in America following the American Civil War, exactly as it did after the First World War because of all these lost loved ones. Um, and it gained popularity because celebrities endorsed it. And back to the science magic question, what's really interesting is you've got people like William Crookes, who was a leading chemist, the president of the Royal Society, supporting spiritualism. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the man who invents, <laughs> you know, the most forensic-minded detective of the age, and Conan Doyle was also a member of something called um, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which was a kind of esoteric, um, secretive society that you had to be initiated into and that uh, assumed that there were planes of consciousness and that you could rise sort of mi- to a mystical awakening through that. So there was a, there was a sense in which... Um, there was, a, I think, a hunger for this sort of spiritual belief in the 19th century. And, and if you think back towards the beginning of the 19th century, uh, end of the 18th century, Gothic literature, of course, is very popular. If you think of the Castle of Otranto and Frankenstein and all that stuff, so there's a real um, tending towards uh, that, that spiritual nature. And I think, I, think, I think ultimately it just boils down to the fact that death just seems too final and that we don't we don't understand 
my lit my lovely literary agent died two months ago and I remember what was on the night that I heard the news just going for a walk and thinking and, and just really genuinely asking the question but 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 where has she gone do you know what I mean well what that but what like asking the, and and really being faced with the most basic of ideas of of loss and of the fact that everybody I love will die if I don't die before you know you know before that and I think it's just it's just such a hard idea to grapple with so it it makes a lot of sense that people are looking for an answer and I think you're all you're completely right that lots of people have taken people for a ride as a result of that have played on that loss and um you know been total charlatans what have we got um, Dan Friedman on the chat here? He's he's a hardcore man. Dan's got gone straight for it. He, he just thinks is this is this is is magic just a way for intelligent people to gain influence within their societies? Like after working on this project, are you left thinking all these magi- you know all these so-called magicians and things that they're just looking to get to trick people and gain influence and power? I'm sure that's true of some people. I'm sure there were people f- uh, for whom that applies. But I also think that there were people, and this is this is where we have to start to grapple with these with the reality of different people's beliefs about things. There were people who genuinely believed that they were witches or wizards um, or you know soothsayers in the past, that they weren't seeking to hoodwink anybody, that they weren't trying to manipulate the systems of the society, that they genuinely believed it, and others believed it too. Then you have to start to look at the world in a slightly different way. And people, you know, not just confessing under torture, but genuinely confessing without torture to say, yes, I am a witch. That makes you think about people's frameworks of belief as being very different from our own. Adrian says, what's the sort of dividing line between belief in magic and, and religious faith? Yeah, it's a really good question, because quite a lot of the time there have been really blurred lines. So, for example, much of what we call voodoo, but more properly it's called voodoo and belief, um, is syncretic. In other words, it takes elements of Roman Catholicism mixes them in um, and there are you know there's an 11th century English spell as a cure for dysentery which in which you are required you know you have to dig up a bramble root which is a blimmin hard thing to do um, and say the Lord's Prayer nine times and then um, boil up the root with mugwort and milk until it turns red and so there's you've got that combination of here go do something in nature you know and have some incantation except the incantation happens to be a prayer right so you've got that absolute overlap and the line between magic and miracle basically depends on the view of of the eye of the beholder i think so we were talking about amulets and um, objects but you've got someone like charlemagne owning a couple of crystal spheres in which one of them's got a bit of the true cross and one of them's got um you know a relic of the virgin mary and he thinks these protect him so it depends who's drawing the line between the two what is considered orthodox and what is not well you know what everyone thank you very much professor lipscomb that was um fantastic Susanna, what is the book called okay the book is called a history of magic witchcraft and the occult it's published by dk and you can get it in all good stores although i would particularly say that there's a shop called fox lane books up in north yorkshire an independent bookshop that i've teamed up with if you want me to sign a copy or dedicate it I will put a book plate in it if you buy it from them. So look them up, Fox Lane Books. What's your next big project? What's your next big book? Next big book is about um, six women who aren't that terribly well known. Um, They were married to this big fat chap at the beginning of the 16th century. Um, He killed a couple of them, uh, divorced a couple of them. 
Um, uh, one died in childbirth and another survived. I wonder if you can guess. Susie, Professor Lipscomb, thank you very much for coming on this podcast. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, that'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.